Cornerstone. Um, <clears throat> my name is Dae Kim, and I am the residential uh, pastor, um, pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. Someone pointed out to me last week that I called myself the resident pastor. I was not trying to ordain myself. Um, <laughs> and it's good that, you know, at Cornerstone, uh, I will be caught in a technicality. Yeah. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen. But Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. That will be our text from uh, this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." And I will strike, strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that you will bless the, word, the preaching of your word, but you also bless the listening of your word. Father, would you open our hearts, would you open our ears to hear, would you open our eyes to see Christ and would you make our hearts of stone into flesh so that we may be convicted and we may be encouraged by the words of the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was once a Republican politician who died, and he went to heaven. And he stood at the gates of heaven, and he met Peter the Apostle. And when he met the Apostle Peter, uh, the, the Apostle said to this man, to this politician, Welcome. You may enter into heaven only if you can spell this one word. And the politician said, fine, so be it. What's the word? And Peter said, the word is love. That's a joke, said the politician. L-O-V-E, love. Peter said, very well, you may enter. But before you go in, would you do me a favor? Would you stand here while I run an errand, and, um, and I'll be right back. And the politician said, what should I do if someone comes by? And Peter said, well, do the same thing I did with you. If they can spell that one word, you may let them in. If they cannot, you may send them to the other place. So the politician agreed. And soon after Peter left, a running mate, a, a, the politician opponent, an opponent, opponent that he ran against on earth, arrived at the gates of heaven. The politician, looking at his opponent, said, what are you doing here? And the opponent said, I could ask you the same thing. What are you doing here? Well, Peter put me in charge, you see. I have the authority to let anybody in. 
And his opponent said, you? You're one of the most intolerant, biased people I've ever met. And the politician said, how dare you? I tolerated you on earth, and I'll tolerate you here. And if you can spell this one word, I have to let you in. And, the, and his opponent said, okay, what's the word? And the politician said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> if you did not find that funny, you're a better speller than I am. So um, that was one of the hardest words I could come up with. But you would think that tolerance would reign in heaven, wouldn't you? That everyone is accepted and everyone can coexist in heaven. But the Bible teaches us something a little bit differently, that heaven is actually one of the most intolerant places in existence, while hell is actually one of the most tolerant places in existence. And what I'm trying to say is that the Bible proposes that tolerance is not always good. And intolerance is not always evil, as our society would make us believe. See, last week we began a new series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and we studied the church of Ephesus and how they had lost their first love. We looked at how Ephesus was all doctrine and no love. Today we're looking at the church of Thyatira, which was the opposite of her sister church, Ephesus. She was all love and no doctrine. Thyatira was a tolerant church, a very tolerant church, and she was not good. But Jesus is an intolerant God, and that makes him good. And this idea that tolerance can be bad and intolerance can be good may make some of you very, very uncomfortable. And that's okay, because my prayer is that God's word will challenge us with our unconventional beliefs and truths that we hold on to. See, God's word sometimes will challenge us in our perception of truth, in our perception of what is good and what is bad. And sometimes it will disagree with what we hold to be true. And I just want to encourage you that today, if you're one of those people that feels uncomfortable with tolerance being good and tolerance being bad, Can I challenge you with this, that sometimes that that could mean, that uncomfort you may be feeling, that could mean that God is meeting you as a person. Because it takes a person to disagree with you. It takes a person to disagree with what, the way you see the world. I've been married for six months, and I never need a reminder that my wife is a person. Why? Because in the span of six months, we've had many disagreements. Most of the times... Because I have the spiritual gift of being in the wrong. Um, and she happens to, be, to have the spiritual discipline of being in the right. And we hope that our children don't inherit my spiritual gifts. Uh, but we mentioned last week that, it's, and, it, and it's worth mentioning again, that um, these seven letters, these messages were not seven separate letters sent to seven different churches, but there were one letter sent to all the churches. And the significance of this is that these messages are not private messages from Jesus. Jesus is not whispering to the churches, but these are his words to all the churches, back then, today, and tomorrow. And we read in verse 1 that the Apostle John is receiving instruction to write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And while it is possible, if you're wondering, is this angel, angel real or is, it, or is it just a figure of speech, um, it's possible that this angel is a real angel. Some take this angel to be a real angelic spiritual angel. However, there are others who also hold that this angel could be the leaders of the church. 
since the word for angel in the New Testament can also mean messenger. So this letter is written to the elders and the deacons and the congregants of the church and um, all the members. And the gospel point of our, of our passage this morning can be summarized like this. Um, Christ, Christ empowers us to stand for truth. Christ empowers us to stand for truth. There are three points that I want to uh, explore with you this morning. Number one, the cost of tolerance. The cost of tolerance. Secondly, the holiness of Jesus. And thirdly, the reward for truth. The cost of tolerance, the holiness of Jesus, and the reward for truth. So first, what is the cost of tolerance? Jesus commends uh, this church for their love, for their works, and for their patient endurance because this was a very loving and self-sacrificing church. See, Jesus points out in our passage that their latter works exceed their former works, meaning that this was a church that not only made their their people feel welcome, this was a church that made them feel like family. This was a church that did not just go to church in the community, this was a church that went to church with the community. And this was a church who did not engage in, in ministries of mercy once or twice a year or, or in Christmas or in Easter or big holidays, but this was a church that was engaged in and throughout every day of their lives in the bettering of the community and serving the community in and out of season. This was a very loving church. In other words, this was a church that if it caught on fire, it wouldn't have just been the members of the church trying to put the fire out. It would have been the whole community would have rallied to her because of her love. This shows us, at the very least, how impactful, how impactful and what a difference a church driven by love can be. And Jesus knows that, knows that and he commends them for it. But in verse 20, Jesus has this one thing against her. That in, the, in her quest for love and being accepting and tolerant, the church of Thyatira became tolerant of sin, and as a result, it cost her truth. See, what's the cost of tolerance? Truth. To understand how this happened, we need to know a few things about the city of Thyatira. The city of Thyatira was not a major city. It was not a very large city. It was a small city, and unlike some of the other cities mentioned in the, in the other letters, Thyatira was not under any major physical violent persecution for being a Christian. So in regards to that, the church was quite safe. But the city of, also, the city of Thyatira was known to be a trade city. It, it was, it was trade, trades were dominant in the area, and there were a lot of trade guilds. They would trade textiles and dyes for cloths and pots and wool and leather. And these guilds were so dominant in the city that your life and your success and your prosperity depended on being in part of one. See, what are trade guilds? They're clo- there's, um, very close to what we call today as unions. These guilds provided security, job security. They provided job opportunity if you're looking for one. They provided your retirement funds. They provided your insurance and other societal needs. If your boat carrying wool sunk, you will go to the guilds for insurance money or you, you will go for them for a loan. You see, with guilds, in 15 minutes, you could save 15% or more on your boat insurance. Like a good neighbor, guilds were there. 
you were in good hands. See, I'm not, a, I'm not an insurance uh, representative, by the way, but gills were that which when life fell through, they had your back. So gills were very, very important if you wanted to make it in the world. But here was the problem. Each guild would adopt a patron god to pray to for prosperity and protection. And roughly every month, just like insurance policies, when they send us our check and bill, guilds would also send a check and bill. And every month, people in their guild had to pay their dues. And how do you pay your dues in the guilds? By bringing sacrifices to the patron god and offering these sacrifices to idols. And later, after the sacrifice and service is over, you would engage in um, alcohol and sex. As these guilds became more and more powerful and more influential in the community, the church now, put yourself in their shoes, the church, the Christians of Thyatira have a huge dilemma. There's a huge question to be answered. And the question is, can the church be part of the, can the church be part of the church, can Christians be part of the church, and also be part of the guilds? Can you be a Christian engaging in sex, alcohol, and maybe rock and roll, and when can you stay true and faithful to the church? That was a big question. And the church was so desperate for an answer that this woman came by called Jezebel, and she said, yes, yes, you can. Now, who is Jezebel that led these people astray? Who is Jezebel? Jezebel is most likely not her name, but it's a name that carries a stigma with it. Uh, much like today, if you, there are certain names that you would not find in the book of baby names. For example, um, you would not find Fresh March Pick, Cain, or October's Best, Voldemort, or December's Delight, Darth Vader. You would not name any of your children, hopefully with those names, maybe as a nickname, but not a real official legal name. Why? Because they carry a stigma with it, don't they? In 1 Kings chapter 16, Jezebel is a prophetess from a neighboring nation who married the king of Israel. And through her marriage, she brought idolatry, indulgence, she persecuted God's prophets, and she brought sexual immorality in the land. So when Jesus is calling this prophetess Jezebel, he's making a statement. Jezebel brought compromise upon Israel, and so did this woman upon the church. See, the attack on the church may not have been a violent persecution. It did not come from outside, but came from inside, since Jezebel is, is said to be a teacher. And interestingly, the call to abandon church's worship and sexual purity did not come through violence nor coercion, but through seduction. See, Jezebel preached a gospel of tolerance. Jesus calls it the deep things of Satan. Why would he call it that? Here's why he would call it that. Because the gist of the message that Jezebel was preaching was this. You can have it all. That it was okay for Christians to engage in pagan worship because you have to make a living, don't you? You can have it all. You can have God and you can have Christianity. Just put them together. Just tolerate and be accepting. There's no problem. See, Christianity can coexist. And in fact, Christianity must coexist and tolerate sexual promiscuity, alcohol indulgence, and the worship of Baal. Because when you're being tolerant, Jezebel would say, it's 
Tolerance is being accepting, and accepting is being loving. This is the same lie that uh, Satan told Eve. You can have it all. As a result, the Christians in Thyatira became very tolerant of sin to the point where truth was lost. See, God is not a God of purity anymore, but he's a God of pleasure. God is not a God of objective truth, but he's a God of all accepting. He's a God of opinion. God is not a God of suffering, but God is a God of comfort. He wants your comfort and your, your retirement. God does not get angry when you kiss another deity in worship because he knows that the kiss didn't mean anything. See, the church was so tolerant of Jezebel's teaching that the church lost truth. Likewise, we could argue that tolerance is still an issue for the church today. See, the traditional church comes under fire for her stance on gay marriage, for abortion and scripture inerrancy. And sadly, many churches today who've switched their views to be more tolerant have lost truth. You cannot tolerate something without losing truth. See, God is no longer the God of marriage, but man is. God is no longer the God who determines when life began, but man does. God is no longer relevant in every circumstance, but culture and opinion is what determines his relevance. And you may say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the church giving a little slack, cutting the word, you know, incorporating other opinions and, and being more tolerant in your belief? There's this article by Alan Levinovitz, who's a professor at James Madison University and who's not a Christian, by the way. And he proposes that championing, championing tolerance is dangerous and hypocritical when it comes to religious or political institutions. Because the moment you tell someone that they should be tolerant of another truth, what you're doing is, is that you're declaring that their truth is no longer truth, but it's just an opinion. And you have to make room for everyone's opinion. At the same time, at the same time, you're being a little hypocritical. Because what you're saying is, there is no other truth except the one I'm telling you. Imagine a husband and a wife go out to eat at a restaurant for their anniversary, and when the waitress comes to take the order, the husband finds the waitress attractive, and he, and he says to her, what are you doing later? You want to you wanna grab a, a drink? And then the, husband looks, uh, the wife looks at her husband and says, Bob, how dare you? Does that ring mean nothing to you? And the husband looks at his wife and says, Honey, how dare you? Of course it does. It means I'm married to you. Don't worry. I was going to take it off when I meet her later. Like, you should be more tolerant of my, what it signifies to me. Alan Levinovitz is picking up on what the Bible says. That intolerance can be a good thing because it preserves and guards truth. In fact, intolerance can be an act of love to preserve that which is good and healthy. On a side note, I want to make clear that this is not an exhortation to hate people who are for gay marriage or abortions or have had abortions in the past or the inerrancy of Scripture. But rather, as Christians, we're called to engage people with love, gentleness, and respect without compromising truth. 
See, for the church of Thyatira to be intolerant meant societal hardships. That job they were promised to get, not there anymore. That social security check they worked all their life for, gone. When your children get married, if you're in Thyatira, no one would show up. If a loved one passed away and you needed a venue to hold a funeral or viewing, good luck. Cornerstone Church, what about us? Where have we become tolerant of sin in our life? Are we afraid to let our coworkers know that where we stand on hot political issues? On a more personal note, maybe for some of you here, you tolerate sin in your entertainment. Maybe there's a show or a movie or a music which you know will tempt you, and yet you indulge because to not do so will keep you out of the loop and people may think you are naive. So we lose, we tolerate any, any form of entertainment in our life, and we lose the truth that whether we eat, drink, or relax, we're doing it for the glory of God. We become tolerant, perhaps, of missing Sunday worship services. It's okay to miss Sundays because my coworkers or my family or, or, who are not Christians or, or my coworkers, we have plans. We had plans for Sunday morning. Or my kids are involved in soccer games and skipping church for it is not a big deal. If so, we may profess that Sundays are important, but we don't embody the truth that God is the God of the Sabbath. You're losing truth. For others, you tolerate not tithing in your life. You haven't tithed in a long time, and that's okay. God understands that I have dreams, and I'm saving my money for the future, so it's okay if I keep all of my money. If so, if so, can I just point out to you that you may profess that God's kingdom comes first, but only after you've built your own. You may profess that God has been generous in your life and good in your life, but you don't embody that truth. Maybe on the other side of the spectrum, maybe you do tithe regularly. Maybe you do come to church on time every single uh, Sunday morning. But are you tolerant of your arrogance? Do you quickly rise above others and look down on others and say, I have a right to feel this way? Have you become perhaps tolerant of the lack of on, on these basic Christian disciplines. Because isn't it true that the more experienced and seasoned Christians we are, we think we can run and not walk anymore? Do you tolerate exploitation at work? I'm well aware that there are a lot of people here who are high-ranking uh, in, their, in their jobs, and you have a lot of people below you, who, below you who work for you. Do you tolerate exploitation at your own work? Are you a Christian who sees people as resources to get work done and further advance your career instead of seeing them as people? Do you tolerate that kind of attitude? Or do you tolerate perhaps favoritism? Treating some people better based on what they have to offer you instead of who they are in the image of God. See, when my, first, when my per parents first came to America, they only knew two words in English, and they're probably the same two words that all um, most immigrant parents know. Uh, most people think it was no English. It was actually Harvard and Yale. Um, and they gave up their citizens. They, they, they gave up their country. They gave up their comfort. They gave, gave up their uh, lifestyle just for the chance so their kids could go to Harvard or Yale. And we dis my, me and my sister, we disappointed them both. Uh, we went to Temple uh, University. <laughs> but, church, if, let's say, one day you have a kid and your kids grow up 
and they have a chance of getting into that top brand national school that just happens to be liberal in their views on religion and Christianity. And if the admission of your kid depended on whether that admissions officer liked what you had to say about religion, that all religions are the same, or your stance on, a, on sexuality or any other political issues, what would you encourage them to say? Would you be able to stand for the truth or would you tolerate? Would you let tolerance creep in? Church, it is possible that in our tolerance of some things in our faith, we have no truth to offer to the world. It is possible to be a truthless Christian standing on sinking sand. And because tolerance can be deadly, Jesus reacts appropriately. Let me repeat that. Because tolerance in the faith can be deadly, Jesus reacts appropriately, which leads us to our second point, the holiness of Jesus. In verse 21, Jesus reacts to the situation of the church. Most people who read this section may ask this question. Does the punishment fit the crime? And the answer we get from the text is, yes. Does the punishment fit the crime? Yes. Something neat about the letters of the churches is that Jesus introduces himself with different, um, with different titles. And these titles that he gives himself are meaningful. They're trying to convey a specific message to each different church. And what's interesting about the way he introduces himself in verse 18 is that he uses specific titles. He, uses, he describes himself as the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God, the one with fiery eyes and feet like bronze. This imagery is meant to provoke holiness in the mind of the readers. See, in other words, Jesus reveals himself to be the Son of God, meaning that he is ultimate truth. He's not coming and giving his two cents and his opinion. This is God himself. Whatever he says is not subjective, nor, nor should give way to be more polite and more politically correct. This is God himself, truth himself. And Jesus has eyes like fire, which are able to see into the hearts of every man and woman ever on earth. And not only that, he's able to judge every single person Why? Because he has feet like bronze, which is another way of saying he lived a perfect life and no one can find fault in him. See, this is God. He is ultimate truth. He is ultimate judge. And he's ultimate person, being. Perfect being. Therefore, because Jesus is who he says he is, it would be unjust to let sin reign in his church. If you're a good parent, it is in your duty to not tolerate disobedience in your children. If you, if you do, you'll be betraying your title. If you're a good teacher, it will go against your role to tolerate mistakes in a, in a student's assignment. Why? To do otherwise, it will be the most unloving thing you could do and also would, against, would defame your title. I'm thankful to have had many great teachers in my life. And how do I know? Because they, all, they were not afraid to give me Fs. If you're a good doctor and you find a tumor in one of your patients, the most unloving thing and the most hypocritical thing you could do is to just let it be and, and tolerate it. 
couple years ago, I went to the dentist to get one of my wisdom teeth pulled out, and the dentist was performing this procedure of removing, and she accidentally chipped the tooth, and then she looks at me, and she says, uh-oh. And then she says, so it seems like the bottom part of your tooth is still in your gums. What would you like me to do? And I looked at her, and I asked her, what happens if we leave it? And she said, well, you might get a couple infections, and you might get, you know, we'll see how your body adjusts, but there's no guarantee. But you will definitely get infections here and there. So I looked at my dentist, and I said, please send me home. And she said, no, we'll try to get it. And thankfully, she did. See, when we tolerate sin, we're not only diminishing the harmful effects it can deal to our faith, but we're also diminishing Jesus' holiness in our life. See, missing one Sunday worship won't kill your faith. But the attitude that lingers there deep in your root, that I am not Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, will. See, the attitude, attitude of not tithing, not tithing won't kill your faith. But entitlement, that attitude rooted deep in your heart that says that my money is my own. And Jesus can get none of it. He's not my Lord. That will. See, cohabitating with a chronic sin without seeking accountability won't kill your faith. But the right to self-indulge and that Jesus is not your joy will. Unwillingness to uh, repent of a particular sin, whether it be favoritism towards people, lust, anger, anxiety, won't kill your faith. But justifying that Jesus understands will. Hence, Jesus is giving this warning to those who don't repent. He's raising the bar of Christian holiness and challenging us that if living a Christian life is easy for you, then it might be because you've become tolerant of something. But, but, because Jesus is good, he has to be intolerant of our tolerance. Because Jesus is holy and perfect, it would be evil for him to not punish sin according to the measure of his holiness. So church, Jesus is a holy and perfect God and his people are to take after him to be holy and intolerant of every single sin, no matter how big or small in your life. But here's the problem. How can the church be holy and intolerant of sin? See, how can we be a church how can the church be a church where it stands steadfast on the truth, unwilling to be tolerant or give yield to another truth? Which leads us to our final point. The reward of truth. The reward of truth. The secret that fuels the church to stand unrelenting in God's truth, church, is no, truth, is no secret at all. It's actually the gospel message. In verse 24, Jesus says this, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What is Jesus talking about here when, that he doesn't lay on them any other burden? What does that mean? Well, in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, um, there's a council called by the disciples in Jerusalem where they try to reconcile how a Gentile, a Gentile who is a person who's not a Jewish, how a Gentile, once they believe in Jesus Christ, they can become pure. What is, what is needed for them to be accepted in Christ's eyes? And this council called by the apostles, they gather in Jerusalem, and they say this in verse 28. This is their consensus. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. What the apostles concluded was that trusting in the gospel is enough to bring purity, and what trusting in the gospel is enough to hold fast on the truth. See, they're not adding any deep secrets, but the encouragement is that what you know is enough and is true. There's nothing more. This truth will not make you fall short. This truth will not put you to shame. This truth will not fail to vindicate you. So how is a Christian to persevere in the truth? By letting the gospel speak truth to your soul. See, when we hold on to this gospel message, when it grabs onto our hearts without compromising, the promise is that the world may abandon you, but the gospel truth is that Christ will not. The promise is that your bodies may fail you, but the gospel truth is that you will receive a perfect one. You might suffer economical setbacks, but the gospel truth is that in Christ you're rich. You might be hated or ignored by those around you, but in Christ you'll be remembered. You might be, you might be thought of crazy, but the gospel truth is that you're the most sane. See, this was a huge encouragement for the church of Thyatira and us today because it tells us that if we hold on to the gospel, we might lose prestige in society, be passed over for promotions perhaps, or economic opportunities, be labeled as primitive or narrow-minded or arrogant. And while the world may be looking at us and pitying us and judging us, Christ in verse 26 promises us a greater reward that is already ours by faith. In verse 26, he promises us this, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus is saying this, church, the world can take advantage of you, but the gospel says that you have exclusive access the gospel says that you have authority over the world. And through Christ, you have it now. So hold fast to the truth and let the truth hold fast to your heart. You may be ridiculed for believing the gospel. But press on because Jesus has marked in his calendar that day you will be honored. So hold to the promise of Christ's words and let the promise his words, hold on to your heart. And on that day when riches fade, beauty withers, and the grave claims and gravity wins, Jesus promises to his church, you'll gain the morning star. Now what is the morning star? In, in the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus ends describing himself as the morning star. Jesus is our ultimate reward that keeps our eyes on the prize. But more amazingly, it is his words that grab our hearts. I'm reminded of that story in, in the Gospels where Jesus is crucified. He looks over. He has two thieves standing uh, crucified next to him. And one of them, in desperation, calls out to Jesus. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. 
And all that thief on the cross that believed had to hold on to were his words. How can the church stand for truth when our eyes are set on our great reward? That when Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, his truth, this truth of the gospel, nothing more, grips our hearts and he places in front of our eyes the shining morning star. So that day after day, we run hard in pursuit of the reward that he secures for us. And as we stand firmly on the truth of the gospel, and we have our morning star in our eyes, we may run this race in faith, knowing that as we fatigue from all this running, that as we get tired and we get mocked from all the hardships, the injustices of life, we might collapse in the arms of our Savior. Our great reward, our morning star, the one who wipes every tear away. So church, how do we stand for truth when we know the reward? When we know the reward is far better than anything this world can offer us. So church, may we persevere in the truth of the gospel. May the gospel truth grip your heart. And may your love for him make you intolerant of every sin in your life. May you protect the gospel truth and run towards it. Stand your ground. And as you do, and as you're pummeled, and as you're judged, and as hardships come, may you run this race of faith and long to fall in your Savior's arms. And finally, long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that we can be very tolerant of sin in our lives. We know that we're so quick to point fingers, forgetting that our sins are also despicable to you. But Lord, we pray that you'll show us your holiness. You'll show us the morning star that keeps us from tolerance and keeps us grounded in truth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.